So 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7-11. through 11. I will go ahead and just read the text, guys, and then we will, we will dig into it. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. (coughs) Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank You once again, Lord, for Your Word. We pray today, Lord, I would ask that You would give us, give us clarity by Your Holy Spirit, Lord, the author of Your Word. Help Your people to, to have understanding of what Your Word is saying to us. Lord, help us to have the wisdom to apply it. Lord, may we see much of Christ in this text today. May He be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, the title of the message is Our Duty, the Glory of God. Our Duty, the Glory of God. In Luke chapter 17, verse 10, a parable that Jesus was telling His disciples, He says this in verse 10, When you do all things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Your version, if you do not have the New American Standard, probably says we've... We've done that which is only our duty. And so that's what we're looking at today. Just the duties that we have as Christians here in this text. But this whole idea of of being a slave to Christ. You know, we don't... When we serve the Lord, beloved, we don't don't deserve... or or I think a better way to say it, we shouldn't expect or even desire any kind of special recognition. When we uh, are obedient to God, we should not expect any kind of commendation for our obedience to Christ. Because we are described in the text that we just read and other places as slaves. That's the way the Bible describes describes us as slaves, bondservants. We're described as slaves who have been bought. We have been bought with a price. We have been purchased. We have been redeemed, if you guys remember that language. Really back in chapter 1 of 1 Peter in verses 18 and 19. It says, knowing that you were redeemed with per- or that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We have, been, we have been purchased. And what were, what were we redeemed from? What were we purchased out of? We were purchased out of another slave market. If you guys remember, we were slaves of sin. Slaves of sin, which results in death and hell. So whether you're in Christ here today, or you're outside of Christ, the Bible describes us as being slaves. But those of us who are in Christ, 
We have been purchased. We have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness. And then now, we're slaves of that very one who purchased us. Amen? We are slaves of Jesus Christ. Our life is not our own. But the whole idea about being a slave, the whole idea about being a slave is, um, I guess you could say, if it's a good or bad thing, is who is your master? Who is your master? And our master is none other than the perfect God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what this whole, this whole, this whole parable that He was telling them, not to think too highly of themselves, but when we, when we do what God has called us to do, we do so out of love for Christ, out of the One who purchased us, set us free from the slavery of sin. It's always a healthy thing to do, guys. And again, I know that this doesn't apply as much to somebody who may have been truly converted as a young person. But think back before your conversion, guys, and just the different, the different um, sins and lifestyles that we were enslaved to. I know, I know that keeps me... It helps to keep me humble when I realize the things that I, were in, that I was enslaved to. And now it's a privilege to be able to call myself a slave of Jesus Christ. So in this text today, our duty, the glory of God, we've got three main points today. In verse 7, we're going to see the necessity of our duty. And then in verses 7b all the way through 11a, we're going to see the description of our duty. And then thirdly, Lastly, we're going to see the goal of our duty. The goal of our duty. So first of all, let's look at the necessity of our duty in the first part of verse 7. This very short phrase, the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. If you guys remember last week in verses 1-6, through just a brief summary of that section we looked at. You remember in verse... uh, in verse 1, it was really the, uh, the power, the thrust of the whole passage to arm yourselves with the same purpose of Christ. To have the same thinking as Christ. And that really fueled the rest of the passage. When we, when we learn to think like Christ, when we learn to, to have an, an eternal mindset, then we no longer want to waste our life living for the lusts of men that we talked about, the, the desires of the Gentiles, the, the unbelieving world, those things that we wasted so many years, some of us living. The things that Paul says we're now ashamed of. But no, we want to have this mind of Christ, think like Christ. In other words, pursue God's will. And then when we do that, we were going to have pushback from the world, but then he, he, he comforted his readers with the, with the statement that they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. <clears throat> and so really, we pick up in verse 7 today. Really this whole, the same, the, uh, the, this little phrase, the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. That, that's, that's comfort for the believer. That's, that's not comfort for the unbeliever. It's still implying judgment. When the end of all things come, that's implying judgment. But for us believers, it's this, uh, we're going to see this because it says, look at it, verse 7, the end of all things is near, therefore. So the things that follow, right? When, therefore is always there for a reason. And it's there 
for a reason because of this truth. The end of all things is near. Have you ever heard the, the statement? And I, and I looked it up. I couldn't find who is the original quoter of this. But live each day as if it's your last because one day you're going to be right. You know, I've heard men like Ray Comfort say that, but I don't know who, who originally quoted, but what a true statement that is. Live today, live tomorrow when you get up as if it's your last day on earth. Because one of these days, you're going to be right. Really, really the same idea in Psalm 92. That's the psalm that Moses wrote. He says this, So teach us to number our days that we may present you a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. It's that same, it's that same idea of the wisdom that this life is short. The brevity of this life. We need to number our days that we may be able to present to the Lord a heart of wisdom. Teach us these things, Lord. We take it for granted, do we not? We just assume that we're going to be here another 50 years. And, um, and I was reminded again this week at my job that, that this life is a vapor. Uh, had a man pass away in, in, a, in, a, in an accident in a FedEx truck. And it's just a reminder that our life is a vapor. If you knew to continue on thinking with this mindset, guys, if you knew, if somehow you had knowledge that this was going to be your last day on earth or the last day with your spouse who's sitting next to you if you're married or with your child or maybe your parent, or your best friend, would it not affect how you live that day? Would it not? Sure it would. And so, beloved, we have a sure word of promise. We have a sure word of promise from Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The end of all things is near. All the major events in redemptive history have occurred leading up to this point. You start with creation, the fall, the calling of Abraham, the kingdom of Israel, the exile in Babylon, and the return to the land, the birth of Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and lastly, the day of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. These are all the major events of redemptive history. The next thing is His return. The next thing is His return. The end. The end of all things is near. Now some would take a different... There would be some that would maybe take a different interpretation of this passage. Maybe um, uh, those who would hold a preterist view, a more post-millennial view, uh, would maybe think that this is referring to the end of the Jewish age in AD 70. I, I don't take that view. Um, this, this text could also be applied just to our lives here on earth. The end of all things is near. Our life is a vapor. So, so whether, whether Christ comes here and you meet Him, or you go there, the end of all things is near. The application is the same. But I believe this is Christ's second coming. The end, meaning the consummation, the fulfillment. A purpose attained, a goal achieved. God's eternal plan of redemption will be brought to completion on that day. In the end. That phrase is near. It means, it means it's approaching. The perfect tense of this language indicates a consummated, completed process with a resulting nearness. It's imminent. It could occur at any moment. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. 
I think Peter, I think Peter uses this kind of language a few different times in his letter in verse 5 in chapter 1. Who are protected by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I think the writers in the Bible anticipated the second coming of Christ a lot more than we do nowadays. In verse 7, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at when? The revelation of Jesus Christ. You don't need to, you don't need to flip here. I'm just going to read a few verses. I just wrote a few down. Luke 12, verse 40, Jesus says this, You too, be ready. Be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Christ's message, when He, when he talked about his coming, it was always with the implication of being ready. Not setting dates. Not trying to figure out who this man or who this... But being ready. That's what we see. Be ready. You do not know when the Son of Man is coming. He's going to come at an hour you do not expect. 1 Corinthians 1.7 So that you are not lacking any gift. Listen to this. Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you await the revelation of Christ eagerly, beloved? I think that's what describes a Christian. We eagerly await Christ. It's not a fearful thing. We eagerly await the coming of our Lord and Savior. Or Titus 2.13. This is the passage where Paul is describing how the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And then in verse 13 he says looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is clearly a reference of them anticipating the coming of Christ. And they're eagerly awaiting. I believe, I just heard a brother talking about this the other day, um, who would hold the same eschatological view that I hold. But the, the passage where it says, Behold, I come like a thief. I think that's more directed to the unbeliever who's that they're oblivious to the second coming of Christ and it's going to come suddenly and the end's going to be. But we are eagerly awaiting, are we not? I mean, there's days I just, oh man, if Christ would just come back. James 5, verse 7-9, through 9, Therefore be... And I'm just giving you just a little bit of... a little bit of taste of the writers in the New Testament. Just their anticipation... Therefore, be patient, brethren, with, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. And then lastly, very familiar passage, Hebrews 10, 24-25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembly together, as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why? What is one of the reasons we meet other than we're commanded to meet? But with the purpose of encouraging one another. Is it not? We want to meet and we want to encourage one another. Why? As we see the day drawing near. And that would, and that would be much more applicable, much more powerful, the harder this life gets. The more of a reality that persecution becomes a reality, these things even become more precious. When we can come together, when we can encourage one another. And that was really one of the con- convictions going on in my own heart about uh, meeting once again on Wednesdays. Always making that available so that we can encourage one another. And I know it's hard for some people to make it, but I want that to always be uh, available that we can meet and we can look at the Scriptures, we can pray, we can encourage one another. And so it says, as we see the day drawing near, how much closer are we now? Right? How much closer are we now? We do not think like this. We do not think like this. I I believe like we should. We're even closer now. And then lastly, the end of Revelation uh, 22, verse 20, Christ, He says this, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. So we need to be ready. All of that to say in our text, just to emphasize what I believe Peter is emphasizing. The end of all things is near. The end of all things is near, therefore. So we see, it's amazing, I I say a point and I can't remember what it was. We see the necessity of our duty. Why? Because Because the end is near. Because Christ is coming back. We need to live a certain way because our King is coming back. That's what it's saying. And so secondly, in verses 7b all the way through 11a, we're going to see the description of our duty here in this text. Now, obviously, this is not a, this is not a um, complete description of the Christian life. But in this text, we will see because the fact that the end is near, we're to live a certain way. That's, that's what it's saying. The description of our duty. First of all, um, and, and we're going to have four subpoints under the second heading. But first of all, look at that next phrase in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit. You know, I think a, a real easy way to, to, to think about what that means is, is looking at what is exactly the opposite of that in verse 3 that we looked at last week. Where he says, For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, or just in verse two, the lust of the lust of uh, the lusts of men. It wouldn't. It wouldn't even have to be that that um, you know that deep of a vice list, but just living for your lusts. Rather than the sound judgment, the sober spirit. In other words, thinking clearly. What is the, how is the only way we're going to think clearly and think rightly? Right? To think God's thoughts. Going back to God's Word. Being in God's Word. Having our mind renewed. Right? When our mind is renewed, through the Word of God, we begin to think clearly. Thinking like Christ. The text last week. Arm yourselves with this. The ESV says the same thinking as Christ. 
under, and the only way we're truly going to think correctly, by being in the Word of God and under the control of the Holy Spirit. Under the control of the Holy Spirit. Thinking like Christ, being under control of the Holy Spirit. Sound judgment and sober spirit. Part of, part of sound judgment and sober spirit is understanding the brevity of this life. When we're thinking clearly, we're going to be thinking God's thoughts. We're going to have, be having an eternal mindset. We're going to realize that, that this life is a breath and we're not going to waste our life. And then, and, then, and then the very next phrase, it gives us the first... Uh, in verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Why? For the purpose of prayer. For the purpose of prayer. That's our first, that's our first look at our duty here in this text. First, first of all, it's prayer. And we, and we need to have a, a right thinking, right? We need to have sober, uh, sound judgment, sober spirit. We need to be thinking clearly. We need to be thinking about the things of God, about the the kingdom of God in order to have a, a faithful prayer life or else what are we going to be praying for? Right? We want to pray for those things that are according to God's will and it only comes with thinking correctly. So the first thing we see is for the purpose of prayer. I'm not going to say a whole lot about this, but we need to be men and women of prayer, do we not? Individually. Starts individually. You need to have an individual personal prayer life. If you're married, pray with your spouse. If you have children, pray with your children. You know, depending on, depending on their age and their spiritual condition, because eventually it goes from praying with them to praying for them. Or, I mean, you always want to pray for your children. But pray with your children. Pray for your children. Pray with your spouse. For your spouse. Pray together. Individually, corporately, as a church, we need to be a praying church again. Part of the conviction that I've been feeling about uh, meeting once again and, 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 and having consistent opportunities to pray together as a church. To pray for one another. To pray for our marriages. To pray for each other in our struggles. To pray for our church. To pray for the ministries in our church. I'm very thankful for the ministries we have in our church. For such a little bitty church body. I believe we have gospel ministries of, of trying to reach people with the gospel, guys. But we have to pray about these things. Do we not want the, God's power upon, upon these ministries? Right? We, we talk about you know, the, the, the evil and the wickedness of abortion. And I don't think there's a Christian around that would not want to see this thing abolished completely and done away with. We need to be praying for that to happen. We need to be praying for God to use us. We need to be praying... For the power of the Holy Spirit to, to, to move as we go and we proclaim the gospel. Whether it's your neighbor, your loved ones, your children, uh, ministries within the church, we need to bathe it all in prayer. And not just assume that, you know, if we go out and we're busy doing things, we don't want to trust in the arm of the flesh. We want to trust in the power of God. And who knows? I mean, Nathaniel and I were talking the other night. Who, who knows? I know God is sovereign, but who knows what God may just simply choose to do when His people are faithful to pray. But we pray ultimately because it draws us into the presence of Christ. And we, we become 
We become conformed to Him. We, we grow in our love for Him. So we need to be... That's really all I need to say about prayer. We just need to be praying people. The end is near. We need to pray. Secondly, we see fervent love in verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So above all, isn't it, isn't it, isn't it fitting uh, that he would say above all when, when talking about loving one another? That's consistent in the Bible. Love is the greatest. Love is the greatest thing we can possess. Remember in the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. This needs to describe us as believers, our love for one another. Do you remember what Christ said to His disciples in the upper room? John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are My disciples. If you are the greatest theologian in the world, no, that's not what it says. It says, if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. Not if you can argue better than anybody on Facebook and put people in their place and go around correcting everybody about everything on Facebook and just sow discord. That's not what it says. I think that's what some people think it says. It says, if you love one another. If you love one another. What is it saying, guys? Love needs to motivate everything we do. And we're going to talk about that more when we, when we look at the, the gifts or just serving one another, it all needs to be in love. The motivation needs to be love. And in this context, we're talking about loving one another. But every other thing we do for the Lord needs to be motivated in love. When you see a woman, and sometimes a man with her, walking into an abortion clinic, the attitude of your heart needs to be love and compassion and truth. So we need, to, we, need to, we need to have love for all men. But we need to love one another. This fervent love. It's, it's a, this fervent means it's a constant, persevering love with eagerness. With eagerness. Do you eagerly, guys, do you eagerly want to demonstrate love for your brothers and sisters in the Lord? Eagerly. It's not just doing so because we're, we have to, in other words. But we eagerly desire to love those and, and, and obviously, these letters, the immediate context is always within the local body, right? Our local body. Obviously, it could branch out to other believers. There's a lot of believers and other churches that I love dearly, who, I, who I've known in the past. But it says, listen to Romans 12.10. Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. And I, and I love the way the ESV says it. Outdo one another in showing honor. You guys remember that? We went through that last year in our one another's. But outdo one another. If you guys want to, if you want to have a competition with one another, see who can outdo each other in these areas. No, I'm going to love you more. I'm going to show you more. No, you're not, Justin. But let's try to outdo one another in loving one another. I don't know why I always just look at Justin. Pick on him. Thank you very much. But it says it covers a multitude of sins. This, this, this idea of fervent love. Fervent love for one another. 
Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Basically just means this, guys. When we are loving one another fervently, sins and offenses towards one another, towards one another they're easily overlooked. It's okay, brother. And you move on. That's, that's what it means to love one another. When we love one another fervently. And you know the greatest way to keep this kind of attitude in your heart? Remembering what Christ has forgiven you for. Contemplating the, 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 the mountain of sin that Christ forgave you for. Contemplating God's love for us when we think about all of our sin against Him. And what we deserve. We deserve the deepest, hottest, darkest place in hell because of our sin. And I know we say those things, but guys, that's what we deserve because God is so majestic and holy and our sin is so awful. And when we think like that, we think, brother, it's okay. I forgive you. Let's move on. Let's move on. I love this quote by Calvin says this about this passage. Thus Peter confirms his exhortation that nothing is more necessary than to cherish mutual love. Okay, Mutual love between believers is something to cherish, guys. For who is there, for who is there that has not many faults? Can anybody in here raise your hand? I can't. I got many. Who is, who is there that has not many faults? Therefore, all stand in need of forgiveness. Amen? We all stand in need of forgiveness. And then I like this last phrase. And there is no one who does not wish to be forgiven. Deep down, we all, we all want to be forgiven when we mess up. So we need to remember that, right? Treat... Treat, treat other people the way you want to be treated. And deep down, we all want to be forgiven when we mess up. And so, thirdly, our third point under the, in, under the description of our duties is hospitality in verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Be hospitable to one another. He, so in this way, he's, he's specifically defi- defining what this love could look like. Being hospitable. Um, now this obviously being hospitable would, would apply. He says be hospitable to one another. It would apply obviously to being hospitable to one another within, within the local church. In other words, really specifically being willing to open up our homes to one another. Back in that culture, that was a very important thing. Number one, they met in homes. That's where they met their, for, their, for their corporate gathering. They met in homes. So there would be a need to obviously be a willingness to be hospitable. And, I, and by the way, guys, I, I do want you guys to know that, that our home is open. Our home is open to you guys. I know we live out way out there, but it's open. Um, it's open and that, that's why we're trying to be intentional and in providing a place of fellowship a couple times a month. It's open in that way. But it's open as a place for need if you guys ever need a place. It's open. You know, you know our, little, our little building out back um, it's it's a it's it's a it's a provision. It's a provision that that if you guys are ever in need, um, that building and and our we would make room in our home. I just want you to know that that our home is open to anybody in need. Um, 
But this word hospitable, it literally means to love strangers, is what the phrase means. To love strangers. Back in that day, again, you had, you had traveling preachers, traveling evangelists, traveling missionaries. And in that day, the inns, the, the or think of you know, hotels, motels, these type of things, the inns were often unsafe, uncomfortable, and, and unaffordable. And so the church would be hospitable and take these, take these men in, take these other believers in. And so it's, uh, it's just taking them in your home. It's, it's being willing to open up our homes for one another, right? And, and obviously it could, be, it could be a difficult task at times. It could be burdensome. That's why it says do it without complaining. Right? The Scriptures say do everything without complaining or grumbling. Um, so, it would just be by way of application, we need to be willing to, to open up our homes for one another and not have this... And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that's anybody in here, but I was just thinking as I was going through this of what may, what may prevent people from wanting to open up their homes. Um, well, I don't, want to, I don't want to mess up my home. Or my home's too messy. All these type of things. We just need to get over ourselves and be willing to open up our homes. That's all I'll say about that. Um, in Hebrews 13 too, I've always found this passage fascinating. Do not, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. And so obviously there's, there's other ways you can show hospitality other than just uh, inviting people in your home. And it made me think of a story back about 12 to 15 years ago um, when I was coming home from work. At this time, my job was out off of council on I-40. And I, and I stopped to get a hitchhiker. Now ladies, I'm not, don't do that ever without your husband. Okay? Just... But I, but I just had a, uh, I, I just had a, a burden to stop and pick up this guy. Um, I think he had a sign like you know going east to a certain. And I thought, well, I can take him all the way to Peebly, and and with the hopes of sharing the gospel with him. And so I don't remember his name, but this passage always reminds me of this guy. Well, he ended up being a. I mean, he was a. Again, there's that phrase again, a big burly guy, um, that I use a lot. But he, this guy was a big old guy. I mean, I think he was from out west. Had a big old beard. Rough looking guy, but tender on the inside. He was, a, he was a Christian. Man, we immediately had some good fellowship. And he literally, that was his ministry. He traveled across the country waiting for people to pick him up so he could share the gospel. That's what this guy did. A lot of truck driving stories he told me. I mean, this guy, this guy, we had some really good fellowship. And I thought... Man, that verse. <laughs> that guy was very unique. He encouraged me. Um, I believe I dropped him off. He wanted me to drop him off at the truck stop at Choctaw Road. I think he had a tent. And, um, and, I, and I met him there for breakfast the next morning, sent him on his way. And I mean, I picked him up, and I was the one that was blessed. And I know he gave me, he gave me a picture back then of some stuff. And, you know, I just, it's probably around the house somewhere. I couldn't remember his name. But it made me think of that. That sometimes when we just... And I've had other experiences like that um, where, where you just think, man, was that, was, that a, um, was, that, was that an angel? You know, I've had guys just show up at the bus station and say things and you're just like, that was odd. <laughs> but, but, 
But we, in other words, guys, I don't want to get too off track here, but we need to be willing to be hospitable. And we need to be willing specifically to be hospitable to one another. Open up our homes for one another without complaint. I'm going to share this verse, and you may think, what does this have to do with that? I actually shared it last week. Ecclesiastes 12.14 For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Typically, we think of a verse like that as a warning verse, right? Preaching the Gospel, and hey, God's going to, He's going to hold all accountable, right? Good or evil, hidden things. But, but I, I speak to you guys as the people of God just, just knowing this, that when, you, when we do things and we do it without complaining, in other words, we have the proper attitude, God's going to reward us for that. He's, going to, he's the judge of all. He'll bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, those attitudes, those motives, whether it's good or evil. So just know that when you serve Christ, when you obey God, you know, I think, I think that day when believers receive their rewards and these type of things, I think it's going to be for things that we totally forgot about. Because our motives were right. We had the right attitude. We did the, the smallest of tasks with the right attitude without complaining. And so just be encouraged by that. Nothing's hidden from his eyes. Not just for the unbeliever, but for you guys. Nothing's hidden. Okay? Nothing's hidden. Nothing you do for the Lord with the right motive or attitude is in vain. Okay? So be encouraged. Lastly, the description of our duty is in verse 10 and the first part of 11, using our gifts. Now, this is not a message, you know, where we're going to expound on the gifts. But just see that this is part of that description of our duty. Using our gifts. Verse, verse 10 and the first part of 11. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Using our gifts. The first thing we see is that these gifts are a result of God's grace. It says we receive them. In verse 10, as each one has received a special gift. Everybody in here, if you're, a, if you're in Christ, you have at least one gift. And, and, and most of the time, it's, you may have one primary gift and a bunch of others and they're all intermingled. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what's the point of them? What's the point of it in this passage? As each one has received a special gift because of the grace of God, nothing you, or, you and I did, right? That's one of the things that, that points out the, the, the whole charismatic movement uh, that's just unbiblical right on the surface is this, they, they, they think that you can come up and choose these gifts. God gifts people as He determines. That's what the Scriptures say. So they're a result of God's grace, these, these gifts that God gives us. But what does it say after that? Employ it in serving one another. There's the, there's the, there's the purpose. We're, we're given these gifts, whatever that gift or gifts are that you have, we're to do it, or we're, we're, given, we're given these gifts to love one another. Again, it's, spe- it's specifically spelling out ways that we can love one another. And we're seeing here that we can do it with our gifts. Matthew 10.8, Jesus says, Freely you have received, and freely give. Freely you guys have received your gifts from the Lord, and we're to freely 
Use them to the benefit of others. To our brothers and sisters. And use them for the Gospel. And it says to be stewards. Uh, Serving one another as good stewards. That word just means managers. And so gifts, all gifts are a privilege. Are they not to be gifted by God to do anything? That's a privilege. But, but I think even more than just being a privilege, it's a great responsibility. Okay, It's a great responsibility. We're going to be accountable for how we use the gifts that God gave us. In this case, spiritual gifting, talents, abilities. But we're going to be, we're going to be accountable before God. We're going to be responsible before God of all that He's given us, right? We're not just stewards of our gifts. We're stewards of your stewards of your children. They're just yours here temporarily for a short time, and then we're going to be accountable to them. Husbands, how you love your wives, your 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 wife. In a sense, you're just a steward over her. You know how we love our spouses, how we manage our money. All of these things, we are stewards of everything that we have. God has given it to us. To be faithful. This, this whole idea is to be faithful with the gifts. I, I put gifts slash abilities that God has given you. You know, we can, and, and that's not what we're doing today, but you can get into kind of dissecting, okay, what's a spiritual gift as compared to a natural ability? Well, it's all, we're all, it's all given by God. Okay? Whether it's a natural ability or not, you're to use it for the glory of God. I mean, I'm glad. I'll pick on Shiloh and Rachel. You know, they can, they can sing and they can, they can bless us that way. And I'm glad they're using those gifts slash abilities to bless us. That's an example. He could be using it to do a rain dance. But he doesn't. He blesses us. <laughs> now he chooses to use it for the one true God and, uh, and to bless the body. But I love this phrase, this next phrase in verse 10, guys. The manifold grace of God. Um, Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That phrase means many-colored, multi-faceted. And so what what does that tell us? It tells us that with these gifts, okay, I think the easiest one to, to see would be like the speaking gifts. Teacher slash preacher, okay? You, you can take a hundred guys, or you can, I mean, you can, whatever number you want to choose, that can all be gifted by God to preach and teach, but yet they're all different. Different styles. Completely different styles. I mean, I've had guys that I've, that I've sat under teaching and preaching, and they're completely different from one another, but they're both such a blessing. That's the idea. It's this manifold grace of God. And that would be true with all the gifts. Okay? You may have the gift of, of serving or... And we'll talk about some of the different gifts here in a moment. But, but because of your personality and your makeup, it's going to look different than, the, than this guy who would have the same gift. And so it's all intermingled. It, it's just a picture of our great God, the, the, the One who created the universe. And how creative He is in forming His body. Each particular body made up of multiple gifts. Multiple gifts. And uh, just, just, that's, even with the same gift, it's, 
It's got a different flavor. And then verse 11a says, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. And whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So whoever speaks, this would be primarily, I think it's, it's talking about uh, the, the, the preacher slash teacher. But I think you could include, you know, anytime, I think you could include uh, evangelism in that. Um, but it's the whole idea of speaking the utterances of God, right? The truths that are in Scripture. That's what we need to be preaching. And this would be, really the gifts come down, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. I think the speaking gifts, as I look through the, the different lists of gifts, and I think the ones that would apply now, that are still applicable now, would be that preaching, teaching, sometimes those are the same, times, sometimes they're different, preaching, teaching, uh, exhortation, or encouragement. Some of you guys have that gift. And I would encourage you to use it. I would encourage you to use it. Because trust me, it, uh, it's a blessing to those who you encourage. And evangelism. These are the, the, these are the speaking gifts. And I want to be real careful when I start talking about evangelism being a gift. Some people are gifted in that area, but we're all commanded to evangelize. Same thing with giving. Some people, it says giving is a gift, but we're all commanded to give. So... But you know, I mean, preaching, teaching, you don't have to stand up here to, 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 to use that gift. All believers have been called to teach somebody that knows less than you. Find a believer who's not as mature and disciple them. Teach them. Obviously, your children, if you have children. Your spouse. Ladies, younger women. So this, this applies to the whole body. Again, if you find it natural to encourage, don't let shyness stop you. Be an encouragement. It's a gift from God. Evangelism, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that manifold grace of God. You can have, you can have people who are, um, you know, maybe, maybe gifted in that area, have a desire to do it, but maybe you have one person who's really good with this one certain kind of group of people. And then you have another guy who he's really good. With this group of people. It's that manifold grace of God. And then whoever serves, the serving gifts would be that which would be giving. Okay? Giving. What a blessing it is when people have that gift. Some people are gifted financially, but I mean they just have that burden to just give. Again, we're all commanded to give, but they have that, just that desire. Uh, one of the serving gifts would be leading. Just leading. Administrating type gifts. You're, you're good at just leading a group of people. Uh, mercy. Have you met those believers? Man, they're just... Again, we're all commanded to be merciful, but there are some people that just... It's like Christ incarnate. They're so merciful. What a blessing those people are. And the, the gift of helps. You just desire to help people. Whatever, whatever these gifts are, guys, we're to use it. Why are we to use it to, for ourselves? No, to, to serve one another, to love one another, to love the body of Christ. By this, the world's going to know there's something different about us when these things are a reality in our life. And it says, uh, for the serving gifts, 
the one who serves by the strength which God supplies. And I think that really just goes back to being a man or a woman of prayer. That's where we get our strength. A man of prayer who's, who's dependent, and these things go hand in hand, dependent on the Holy Spirit. We all know the verse. You see athletes, they have it right here under the eyes. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. <laughs> a proper application of that verse would be doing anything to accomplish God's will. Now Paul was talking about being just learning to be content whether he had a little or a lot. But that would apply to anything that God has called us to do. The strength which God supplies. In other words, it goes back to prayer. It goes back to trusting in God's Spirit. Being humble. Realizing I can't do it on my own. And then thirdly, guys, the goal of our duty. The goal of our duty. The title of the message, Our Duty, The Glory of God. Right? As believers, that's our greatest, that's our greatest desire and goal is that our God will be glorified. Remember the Lord's Prayer in, in, the, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount we looked at a long time ago? Um, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done. And so that's our desire is that not only in our life, but, but that the world would glorify God. They would see how... And that comes through as the Gospels preached and hearts are transformed, you get people who used to blaspheme God now giving glory to God with their life. That's our heart. That's our desire. So the goal of our duty is the last and final point. The goal of our duty... Is this, is this glory of God. In verse, verse 11, the second part of verse 11. So all this that's been set up to this point. So you had, you, first of all, you had the end of all things is near. Therefore, so we looked at therefore, live like this. And then the middle of verse 11, so that. So that. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So that in all things. You know, this is a doxology right here in this verse. Um, this, this phrase that we're looking at, it's, it's a doxology. Usually these are at the end of a letter. And you guys, if you remember what a doxology is, we sing the song doxology, but it's, it is just that, an expression of praise and glory to God. And sometimes you see these writers, man, they're just writing, all of a sudden they just break out in praise. And so that's what's going on. But, but, that, but that God may be glorified. Matthew 5.16 I think, I think uh, really speaks to this idea. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father who is in heaven. So in other words, live in such a way. You know, Live in such a way that when... People see your life and they know you're a Christian that God gets the glory. Not you, not me. I had a man at the bus station a couple weeks ago. I don't know whether he was truly converted or not. He was a really nice guy. I've seen him before. And he was showing me, he came up and he was showing me this little, this little folder he had. And he said he was, uh, and it was like some artwork. I think like comic type art. But he, he and it was, and it was meant to, as an evangelism tool, and so I definitely took him at his word. But he made this statement. 
he said, yeah, you know, this is for me to reach people for Christ. He said, so one day I can be famous. And I had to correct him there. And I said, hey man, I love what you're doing, but anything we do for, you know, for the Lord, it's not so we can be famous, it's so to make Him famous. And he did. He, he, he got it. So he had a, he had a humble response. But it's, it's whatever we do for the Lord, right? We're doing it so He will receive glory. So that men and women will glorify Christ. Glorify our Father who is in heaven. So anything good that comes from us, guys, let's, let's deflect it to Christ. Amen? Also, not like uh, just my background and doing what I've done for the last 12 years. It's not like street preachers I've heard. And they're usually they're Reformed street preachers. Do it for the glory of God, man! That was for the glory of God! And you, and you listen to their message and think, I don't think God got much glory. I mean, He was mean. He was arrogant. He was uh, condescending. But oh, they did it for the glory of God. So, I mean, no. Our attitudes need to be right. I mean, how much glory is God going to get when we are totally misrepresenting who He is? You can be preaching the truth and God's not going to be getting a whole lot of glory if you're just totally full of hate and arrogance and all these type of things. No, it's, it's to affect our attitudes. How we come across. 1 Corinthians 10.31 I know we all know this verse. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The most mundane things we do, eating, <laughs> drinking, just these common things, our attitudes, our, our, or I guess I should start with our actions. Our actions. The words that come out of our mouth. Our attitudes. Our motives. Things like our Christian liberty. Maybe those things that we do for the sake of conscience. All needs to be done to the glory of God. Right? When, when it, in, in the Scriptures, when, it, when, when Paul talked about you know, whether, a, whether a Gentile should eat meat that was once sacrificed to idols or not, what was Paul's response? Hey, if you're going to do it, do it to the glory of God. If you're not going to do it, don't do it to the glory of God. It's all about the glory of God. In the Shorter Catechism, in the Westminster, what does it say? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Everything we do, everything we do should be, our motives should be to glorify God. Everything we do. And that comes down to attitude. Right? I mean, how do you eat something for the glory of God? Well, if you're ungrateful, you're not eating for the glory of God. We just want to be thankful, right? When we sit down, we pray for our food. It shouldn't be a mechanical, but it should be, Lord, Thank you for this food. You are our provider. And you give Him the glory. And it says this, guys. What does it say? Verse 11. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. The only way that we can ever bring glory to God is through His Son. Amen? That's the only way we can truly ever bring glory to God and glorify God is if it's through His Son. I mean, I think that's rather obvious to you guys in here. But listen to 2 John 9. It says, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. 
Now the context of these passages is false teaching and these type of things. But listen, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. A person can be as sincere as ever. But if they try to approach the Father outside of the truth of what Christ taught, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, that there is no other way to the Father, that there's no other mediator between God and men, they don't have God. They have not, they, they're not even approaching God. And he goes on to say, the one who abides in the teaching, the teaching of Christ, right? The teaching, the Bible, the Word of God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. So if a person is not coming to God through Christ, not only can they not ever glorify God, they don't even know God. They don't have God. It's all found in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why He came was to show us who the Father is. He said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. And He said, there's no way to the Father except if you come through Me. And that that means coming through the truth of who He is. He is the one and only mediator between God and man. And men. The man, Christ Jesus. Not Mary and not Muhammad, but Christ. He is the only mediator between God and man. And if we're ever going to glorify God, it's going to be in Christ. Okay? There's no glory to God apart from Christ. You know, I think back in Proverbs when it says, even the prayer of a wicked man is an abomination to the Lord. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Well, who's the wicked? That's somebody that's not declared righteous through Christ. So you can be having all the prayers and have all the religious ceremony, but if it's not rooted in Christ, if it's not centered upon Christ, then not only does it not glorify God, God says it's an abomination. Get away from Him. Because I sent My Son. I sent My Son, and He is the only one mediator between God and man. And so we know the only way we come to God is through faith in Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. And so guys, in closing, all that we do, we do for the glory of God. Everything that we do, we do for the glory of God. And we do it through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Flip over to Revelation chapter 5, guys, for our last little reading here. And we'll just see this. Revelation 5, 11-14. And then just with some closing comments and we'll be finished. Revelation 5, 11-14. Oh, what a beautiful passage. John says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down 
and worshipped. It's just a picture someday, guys. Someday we're going to be singing and we're going to be worshipping and we're going to be serving this One. God the Son. (laughs) The Lamb of God for all eternity. And, And perfect worship and perfect obedience. And so let that... Let that encourage you to glorify Him in this life. And so beloved, to summarize what we looked at today, the end of all things is near. Okay, Whether that's Christ's return or our heart given out, the end of all things is near. So we do all that we do. right? In this case, we, we love one another fervently. We get serious about our prayer life because this thing is going to be wrapped up It's going to be wrapped up sooner than we think. So we do all that we do to the glory of God. And then we can say with John the Apostle at the very end of the text of Scripture, Amen. Come Lord Jesus. I hope that's your heart's attitude. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your plan of redemption, Lord. Thank You, Father, that... um, that Christ is the pinnacle, Lord. There's nothing we need. It's not Christ plus something else, Lord, but it's all that we need is found in Him. Forgiveness of sin um, through the Spirit of Christ, power over sin, a new heart, a transformed life. You've given us all we need. You've given us Your Word, all that we need to live godly in Christ. You've given us. You've given us gifts to serve You, to serve one another. Father, You've given us a Gospel to preach. And Lord, may we be found faithful in in proclaiming it. Thank You again for the freedom to to gather and to worship You. And Lord, we we pray that that You will help us, God, that You will give us that awareness, that that sound judgment, that sober spirit, Lord, to, to continue to strive to have an eternal mindset, to see opportunities that are around us, to use our gifts to serve one another and to to reach out and try to rescue those, Lord, who are perishing. We love You and we praise You. In Christ's name, Amen.